I'm your host, Doug Berg, and welcome to Berg's Brain, a storytelling comedy show that will hopefully make you laugh, make you think, and make you want more. On this episode, I'll cover topics from Alphabets, to Scrabble, to Mount Rushmore, to the Harlem Globetrotters, to the reason Wilt Chamberlain got his nickname Wilt the Stilt, and many, many more. So jump aboard the train, get a little insane, get inside Berg's Brain. Berg's Brain is brought to you by Xlax. Xlax for people who just couldn't give a shit. As with all medications, Xlax comes with the following disclaimer. Stimulant laxatives should not be taken for any purpose other than the relief of occasional constipation, unless otherwise directed by a doctor, or if you want to play a great practical joke on your douchebag older brother. Play us away, Peapod. So I grew up in Cincinnati, and my mom was an English teacher at our local grade school, and she was really into proper grammar and perfect spelling. So for breakfast, she only let us eat alphabet cereal so we could eat and spell at the same time. I remember mom always trying to motivate us to eat alphabets with her catchy jingle, Come on, honey, they're ABC delicious! At which point I'd mutter under my breath, and eating these little sugary bits every damn day is ABC depressing. I mean, limiting our choices to alphabets wasn't horrible, but after a few years of eating nothing but alphabets, I started spelling things in the bowl like, Mom, this cereal sucks. How about some Apple Jacks? Which was a pretty amazing sentence to fit in a little cereal bowl. So to keep the multigrain letters from moving and jostling around constantly in the milk, I devised this incredible anchoring system using about three inches of grape nuts mixed in with the whole milk to make the cement mortar base and place the letters in one fortified sugary nugget at a time. And that's when I first realized grape nuts had so many uses beyond cereal. Run out of cement while sinking a few fence posts? Fill the holes in with grape nuts, mix in a little milk? That fence ain't going anywhere for generations. Own a cement company and your cement delivery is on back order? Pour a few tons of grape nuts into that spinning mixer truck thingamajig? Shoot the grape nuts right into the foundation? Hell, you won't even need rebar to hold these gritty babies together based on the two-ton tensile strength of the crunchy rocky nuggets. And you know that mafia phrase when disposing of a body in the river? Why don't you give Joey two balls a pair of cement shoes? Screw the cement. Have two balls slip on a pair of size ten and a half grape nut galoshes, and that body's never seen the light of day. And to this day, never understood the name grape nuts. Not a hint of purple, and it's a cereal produced by General Mills. No subsidiary of, or any apparent connection to, planters, the nut people can only chalk it up to some creative marketing genius, because if you named them based on their texture, you'd have to call them, well, gravel. And in terms of gravel, you ever see these signs on the side of the road, caution loose gravel? I mean, isn't all gravel by definition loose? Do we really need the descriptive word loose? Hell, do we really even need a damn sign? Don't know about you, but I see a pile of gravel on the shoulder. My first inclination isn't driving directly into it, whether it's loose or if it's somehow bonded together like giant pebbly peanut brittle. And what's with the broad, sweeping, generic name General Mills? Couldn't get a tad more specific, less run-of-the-mill? Can just see the board of directors sitting around entertaining pitches from top-notch branding companies. Gentlemen, your headquarters are in Minneapolis, so how about Minneapolis Mills? Nah, too narrow, too limiting. Okay, well, we're in the state of Minnesota, so how about Minnesota Mills? Don't want to be pigeonholed into a particular region. So it sounds like you want a name that's really vague, really imprecise, a name we'll have no identification with, so how about General Mills? General Mills, now that's a name we can get behind. And who can forget the first time you put a heaping spoonful of grape nuts in your mouth? Couple chews, couple bites... Broke every damn molar. Dentists gotta love grape nuts. You know those ads where four out of five dentists surveyed recommend sugarless gum for their patients who chew gum? What's with 20% of these quacks opposing sugarless gum? Basically, one out of five of these not quite good enough to be doctors recommends Little Johnny chew sugar-based gum. Hmm, sugar, cavity inducer, dentist visit, filling, new Porsche 911 every two years? And when I think of the Porsche 911... It makes me think of the unfortunate luck Porsche had to deal with a number of years ago. I mean, the Porsche 911, the preeminent sports car since 1964. For over 50 years, Porsche produced one million sleek, beautiful, wonderful Porsche Carrera 911s. And then in 2001, 
9-11 happens. Now, clearly that tragedy had far greater impact on the thousands who died, their families, their friends. But at the same time, it was bad luck for Porsche. You know Porsche executives over in Stuttgart were sitting around after the attack, many wearing lederhosen. And while I'm sure they were saddened and concerned for loss of American life, they had to be saying, this couldn't have happened one day later? Couldn't have waited till 9-12? The Germans had to be bummed that the worst part of the attack occurred in New York our largest city, with far and away the most Porsche sales. Because you know sales of the 9-11 dropped precipitously after 9-11. Don't think a lot of New Yorkers after 9-11 were running out to Porsche dealerships to buy a 9-11. Can you imagine the shaming if you did? Hey, Eddie, nice new Porsche. What kind is that? 9-11? You bought a fucking 9-11 after fucking 9-11? Took the fucking car back, you fucking retard scumbag. What are you going to do next, schmuck? Go to a sushi joint to do sake bombs on Pearl Harbor Day? And by the way, don't you just love the New York accent? We had family that lived in Queens, and one time on a visit, my 10-year-old cousin Arnie was in a spelling bee, so the whole family went. Unlike the kids who were born and raised New Yorkers, the MC slash judge slash host woman was British. You know, very proper, old school. So the first word she gives Arnie is dirty. Arnie asks the judge to use it in a sentence, and she says, the man in working in the coal mine was dirty. Arnie says, oh, doity, D-O-I-D-E-E, doity. And amazingly, he gets the ding, as in that's correct. I'm dumbfounded. The next little kid, Vinny, gets the word father. Vinny asks for a definition, which I'm thinking is somewhat unnecessary, and the host says, a man who has a child, the first person of the Holy Trinity, a priest. Vinny says, oh, fada, F-A-D-D-A-H, fada. And again, ding, correct. Huh? What? So the next kid up is Gino, another nice Italian boy, and the host says, the word is murder. First thought running through my youthful developing adolescent brain is they gave a nine-year-old kid the word murder? Just then, my mom leans over, whispers in my ear, Don't you think the spelling bee would be a lot more exciting if the kids had to spell out the words in cereal bowls using alphabets? And I whisper back, That would be awesome, Mom. Then turn away, look at Dad, and mutter under my breath, Mom's ABCD delusional. So Gino's kind of frozen, and the MC asks him if he needs a definition, and he says, Nah, my family and I are quite familiar with that word. Moida. M-O-I-D-A-H, moida, as in moida the bombs. And of course, another ding. Unfortunately, Cousin Artie misses his next word and is out. Gino's got a chance to win the B, and the final word is coffee. So Gino asks the judge to use it in a sentence, and she says, I prefer Earl Grey tea, but most Americans like coffee. Gino pauses, gathers himself, and says, coffee, K-U-A-H. W-F-F-F-E-Y, coffee. Ding! And he wins the goddamn New York City spelling bee. So the judge congratulates Gino and says, As this year's champion speller, Gino receives a new MacBook Pro. And after a smattering of applause, Gino's dad stands and says to the judge, That's nice, but is there a way I, I mean we, I should say he, my winning son, could get the cash equivalent? And while the New York spelling bee blew me away, it couldn't hold a candle to the following year when we visited our cousins in Boston and my first cousin, Tommy O'Berg, won the Boston spelling bee, where an interesting requirement to spelling words correctly is that you had to say the word fucking before every goddamn word. So Tommy's crushing it like a wicked pisser and nails the words fucking smat, fucking dumpster, and fucking chowder on his way to winning the goddamn fucking contest with the word fucking retarded. Hell, after the New York and Boston bees, I was praying we didn't have to visit my cousin Bo in Little Rock because there was no way I was understanding one word of that southern marbles rolling around your mouth spelling bee. And back to Porsche for a sec. Porsche isn't the only company to be impacted by an unlucky event tied to a company name or product. Beginning in 2020, we had this crazy little interruption called the coronavirus. Since that unfortunate naming of the pandemic, Corona beer's sales plummeted over $150 million. And I'm willing to wager that the de decrease in sales is by the same group of intellectually challenged beer drinkers that believe to their red, white, and blue core, it's an infringement on their constitutional rights to wear a damn mask. It's a mask, a one-ounce piece of cloth. 
It's not one of those rubbery, latex, fully committed, all-in Freddy Krueger Halloween masks. No one's asking you to put on a suit of armor or don a bio-waste Chernobyl hazmat suit. These red state yahoos should be thanking their lucky stars and stripes they didn't call the coronavirus the KFC virus, because the CDC would have had to deal with the KFC and come out with a catchy slogan to keep Billy Bob and Cletus from getting sick, like, put down the bucket so you don't kick the bucket. And based on that little jingle... Somebody in the KFC marketing department must have eaten way too many large plastic containers of mashed taters, because clearly KFC missed a great marketing opportunity. I mean, we all have a bucket list. You know, that list of things we want to do before we die. How could the marketing folks at KFC not come up with an ad campaign endorsing the virtues of the KFC bucket list? Think of all the exotic places and death-defying activities they could show fat-ass fried chicken-loving, morbidly obese rednecks eating a bucket of extra crispy. Even better, have old Colonel Sanders himself bungee jumping off some famous bridge and at the bottom and the top of his bunge show the colonel chomping away on a massive thigh or juicy breast. Or what if we followed the colonel as he summits Mount Everest where his strict vegetarian Sherpa snags a bucket out of his North Face backpack as the good colonel woofs down a drumstick at over 29,000 feet? And what if the colonel always had a hankering to skydive? Have that white-suited, white-hat-wearing, white-bearded, white-folk jump his grease-filled, already clarked lard-ass out of a Cessna while a tub of steaming hot mashed potatoes and gravy splatters his wind-blowed beard, fogs up his goggles right before he pulls the ripcord parachute to a picture-perfect landing carrying a 20-piece mega-bucket. Come on, KFC. The KFC bucket list. It's like shooting fish in a barrel, or in your case, frying breasts in a fryer. And KFC, or as it was called when I was growing up, Kentucky Fried Chicken, because there wasn't a stigma attached to fried foods that required a marketing ploy turning the word fried into the letter F, was our go-to takeout chicken joint, because mom wouldn't let us within 50 miles of Chick-fil-A because the incorrect spelling of the word filet, to quote mom, bastardized the English language. We still had good old KFC, so no Chick-fil-A, no biggie. But what really sucked was we couldn't shop at Toys R Us. We went once, not to shop, but so mom could demand the manager change the letter R to the word R, A-R-E, so the company name was grammatically correct. So we'd have to shop at some lame-ass local toy store like Larry's Toys, which was no barrel of monkeys, and as soon as we got home, I'd immediately grab a bowl of alphabets and angrily spell out the question, Mom, are you nuts? Of course, using the letters R and U just to spite her. And it never ends. It continues to this day. Just bought a new car and was going to donate my old car to that charity, Cars for Kids. And probably could have done it, except my mom heard their catchy little jingle. one eight seven seven cars for kids K-A-R-S, Cars for Kids. one eight seven seven cars for kids Donate your car today. After which my mom vehemently said, only way you're donating your car with a C to that misspelled malfeasance is over my dead body, young man. And back to Corona for a sec. Like the Porsche 911 debacle, you could say it was just bad luck, bad timing, or you could say how the MAGA, Make America Great Anti-Mexico Non-Corona Drink and Anti-Mask Wearing Trump Administration slash family slash circus slash cult of grifters, con men, scammers, and swindlers, hustlers, deceivers, cheaters, and bilkers, Frauders, fleecers, flimflanners, and hosers, the whole stinking lot of barrel of posers. Whoa! Suddenly I'm channeling Dr. Seuss, <laughs> which is perfect timing for my debut book about Trump's embarrassing loss of the 2020 election called One Trump, Two Trump, Red Trump, No Trump. Immediately followed by the highly anticipated sequel focusing on his bizarre and tumultuous last few days in office called Trumpster Fire, Dumpster Fire. Now knowing what we know about Trump on a stump... Don't you think it's highly likely that once wind of the deadly virus reached the states, the miserable, murky, muddy MAGA mob was immediately approached by a crafty, slimy, ballsy Budweiser lobbyist offering up a tidy $100 million campaign donation in return for a promise to insert the name Corona at the front of the virus to gain competitive advantage over Bud Lime, whose sales were a far distant second to Corona's? Look, while I prefer a more robust IPA, Corona with Lime's a tangy, tasty, refreshing beer perfect for a hot summer day. Bud Lime, on the other hand, sucks. Now, I'm no freaky equine urine-drinking fetishist, but to my taste buds, Bud Lime has the not-so-subtle undertones of Clydesdale piss. But you take Corona out of the equation, suddenly Bud Lime fills the void in all its good old red, white, and blue glory, USA Clydesdale piss glory. 
And you know who's got to be breathing a huge sigh of relief? Jose goddamn Cuervo. That tequila titan's got to be jumping for joy, higher than a handful of Mexican jumping beans that Biden took over. Because you know if another pandemic hit during Trump's second term, next on the anti-Mexico naming list was the Jose Cuervo virus. So, winding our way back to grape nuts and those four out of five sugarless gum recommending dentists, if there was a similar survey for eating grape nuts, guarantee you five out of five dentists would recommend munching on these mini lava rock dental dreams as five out of five patients grind their teeth down their nubs and need new crowns after every breakfast. And you know the other grape nut-like food that must be high up on the dental Mount Rushmore getting five out of five recommendations? Gotta be those rocky little sugary candy nuggets nerds. Nerds have that same gravelly texture as grape nuts with the wonderful added bonus of being straight sugar. I'm just waiting for the day when General Mills and Nestle's combine the two to make the cereal called Grape Nerds. Hell, it'll be the daily double for dentists. And speaking of Mount Rushmore, I can never remember if it's located in North Dakota or South Dakota. And by the way, do we really need two Dakotas? Couldn't come up with another state name, huh? This heavily populated metropolis needs two states? There's nine damn people, total, in both states. Dakotans must be a claustrophobic lot as they need a whole shitload of space. I'm surprised they stopped with North and South. We're proud to announce the 51st and 52nd states in this great republic, and we're calling them East Dakota and West Dakota. And next year, we intend to return to Congress and demand we add Southwest Dakota and Northeast Dakota to the mix. And by the way, it's not like the Dakotas were a one-off or some anomaly. Same stupid shit for the Carolinas. North Carolina, South Carolina. I guess the Carolinas and Dakotas kind of make sense because one is north and one is south of the other. Odd man out to me in this state-splitting boondoggle. Virginia and West Virginia. That's basically Virginia and a little more Virginia. If I happen to reside in the eastern part of Virginia, what about me? Where's my state? Where the hell's East Virginia? Anyway... Back to my childhood and bowl of alphabets locked down with grape nuts. See, the problem was, after a few minutes, grape nuts hardened to the bowl, turning it into this petrified, fossilized remnant. And once those babies were locked on, I couldn't scrape the letters off with a pickaxe or a jackhammer. I even tried dynamite, and that couldn't dislodge those grainy particles, so I just threw the bowls away. Well, imagine my surprise when years later I found out Mom saved each and every bowl as a fossilized reminder of my poor grammar. Yeah, and better yet, she brings them out when the family gets together for the holidays. Hey, here's a classic, my drunk Uncle Dick blurts out. Remember when dumbass forgot the I before E except after C roll and spelled the word glacier? G-L-A-C-E-I-R, not G-L-A-C-I-E-R. What a schmuck. And that kind of English language exception crap drives me crazy. These Webster's or Oxford English dictionaries set up some kind of letter-following rule and then it has its own little rhyming phrase like I before E except after C. And then these lexicon artists break the rules repeatedly with tons of exceptions. And that grammar needling doesn't stop with my Uncle Dick. Next, my 97-year-old Granny Gertie gets in the act with, Oh, here's one of my favorites. Look how the little guy forgot the letter P to start the word psychologist. Kills me every time I see it. That's because you're psychotic, Gertie. And there's a word that definitely has a P before the S. And I'm not sure if you're aware, but alphabet serial has a grammatical defect because the serial comes with no punctuation. So as a young boy, I'm spelling these incredibly long run-on sentences in the bowl until my stickler mom, Gracie Grammar, no relation to Kelsey Grammar, says, Hey, 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 where's the comma? So I'm biting O's in half and sticking them in, which wasn't that big a deal, except sometimes I leave a question in the bowl like, Hey, mom, what's for dinner? And you gotta have teeth like a New York City rat to carve out a question mark. So years after eating and spelling at every breakfast, I tried to devise a way to get out of this alphabet's nightmare. One time, I was down to half a box, so I poured out all the letters and counted how many of each letter I had left. 
There were only five O's. I looked up the word containing the most letter O's, and the word was a 45-letter word for lung disease called pneumono-ultramicroscopic silicon volcano naniosis. So I started spelling it out and said, uh-oh, mom, looks like I'm running out of O's, so I guess I should stop and go out and play. And as, as I started to get up from the table, mom said, hold on, sweetie, as she calmly strolled into the pantry and after a few seconds came back and handed me a box of goddamn Cheerios. Now you have all the cheeriest of O's you'll ever need, sweetie, she said, exiting the kitchen, whistling a happy tune, and as she turned the corner, I yelled, cheery, oh my God. And mom would carry this eating and spelling food-based combo project into every meal. For lunch, our choices were alphabet soup or SpaghettiOs. And I chose SpaghettiOs because my options were limited to spelling the words ooh or oh. But of course, my wordsmithing drill sergeant mom pointed out the words ooh and oh actually end in the letter H. So I had to place the SpaghettiOs in two columns with a row of O's between them like I was diagramming the Watson and Crick double-stranded DNA helix model to form the letter H so I could spell the words ooh, O-O-H, and O-O-H correctly. And mom even made us eat and spell on vacation. When I was nine, we went to Hawaii, and in lieu of a luau, and by the way, whenever I hear the word luau, I hearken back, because no one ever seems to hearken forward, to Kareem Abdul-Jabbar, whose given name was Luau Cinder, and how Kareem single-handedly, because for some reason doing something double-handedly, I guess, is meaningless, Luau Cinder slash Kareem Abdul-Jabbar changed the game of basketball in two amazing ways. First, Kareem, back when he was Alcindor, started playing basketball in college at UCLA for legendary coach John Wooden, the Wizard of Westwood. And Wooden was old school. Total preparation, attention to detail, to the point he taught his players how to properly put on their socks and tie their shoes. And players back in the 60s didn't question, didn't complain. They just let this little wire-rimmed wizard with his trademark rolled-up game program instruct them on putting on socks and tying their shoes. How many ways... Are there to put on socks and tie your shoes? But I guess you win an unprecedented 10 championships in 11 seasons, including seven consecutive, you get to tell college kids how to dress. But what a different time. Can you imagine the Wizard of Westward trying to teach LeBron how to don his socks and tie his shoes? In a short, to the point LeBron tweet, the Wizard of Westward would be labeled the weirdo of Westwood never to coach again. But back to Alcindor slash Jabbar and how he changed the game. See, NCAA officials felt he was too dominant a player because he could dunk the ball at will. They felt he'd be unstoppable. So they changed the rules to forbid dunking in college games. The Alcindor rule, as it was called, held from 1967 to 1975, but no, it was rescinded and players were allowed to dunk again. Now, can't you just see these milk-toast, crew-cut, wire-rimmed, glasses-wearing, bleach-white, big-time supporters of the Vietnam War NCAA officials sitting around the table in 67 complaining how we gotta get Duncan out of the game because it's ruining the integrity and the only Duncan in America should be for powdery white donuts. So these racist bastards outlawed dunking. They outlawed one of the greatest plays and most exciting moments of basketball because they feared a tall, graceful, angelic, gifted, divine black player could take the integrity out of a white-invented, peach-basket, flat-footed, set-shotted, right-handed, only dribbling, Chuck Taylor, high-top-wearing, short-shorted, Indiana Hoosier-Daddy, hillbilly, hooping game. Articles I've read on the topic go on to say, and I quote, As a result of the rule taking away dunking, Alcindor developed a good hook shot which he used effectively during his playing days in college and the NBA. A good hook shot? He didn't develop a good hook shot. He developed a great hook shot, an outrageous hook shot, a one-of-a-kind hook shot, an unstoppable fucking hook shot, one that was known as the sky hook shot, or as people who know the game simply say, the sky hook, because you don't need the word shot at the end of the word sky hook. Sky hook tells you all you goddamn need. See, in basketball history, there's only a few epic shots. Early on, when it was a segregated whites-only game, you had the set shot, which was what slow, earthbound, gravity-challenged white guys did for the first 30 years of the NBA by simply shooting the ball two-handed from a set or flat-footed stance. Sorry I missed that edge of your seat, nonstop excitement. I have this sixth sense, this odd, tingly feeling that if Trump had won a second election... He and Kentucky's own bluegrass blue blood, Mitch the Bitch McConnell, would have passed a law requiring the set shot be the only shot in basketball, because America would have been made great again if we just go back to the set shot. 
Now the next innovative shot was the jump shot. Black players who could actually jump, unlike their grounded white brethren, jumped into the air and then shot the ball, providing a better angle to shoot and avoid getting blocked. The next great shot was the finger roll, a delicate flick of the wrist dropping the ball just over the front end of the rim like a pole vaulter precariously clearing the bar by a millimeter. And this delicate flick was invented by a literal giant, seven foot one Wilt the Stilt Chamberlain, who scored over 31,000 points in his long, illustrious career, scored 100 points in a single game, maintained a paltry 50-point-per-game average for an entire goddamn season. But the mind-blowing stat for all fans, at least male fans, is not how many points Wilt scored or blocks Wilt blocked. It's that Wilt is still in his tell-all book, A View From Above, allegedly banged over 20,000 women in his, some would argue, more illustrious off-the-court career. Now, hypothetically, let's just say that Wilt started sleeping with women at age 15 and the 20,000 number was reached by the time he wrote his book at age 55. That means he had to sleep with 500 different women every year from ages 15 to 55. So over approximately 40 years, and isn't approximately a great word, no stress, no anxiety, no need to be exact, screw exact, just be in the ballpark, within reason, here or there, roughly, more or less, in the region of, in the neighborhood of, horseshoes and hand grenades, kind of close. So for Wilt to hit the unimaginable total of 20,000 sexual partners over the course of approximately 40 years, he would have had to sleep with two women a day. That's a lot of fucking finger rolls. Now in my situation, besides my wife, I know a total of nine women in the world. And none of them, not one of the ten, including my wife, do I have any chance in hell to sleep with. 20,000? 20 goddamn thousand? Hell, I haven't had 20,000 erections in my entire life. And the crazy thing is, Wilt Distillit and I go way back. I met Wilt Chamberlain and I saw him naked. With a sentence like that, thinking I should have started off this Michigan story with that grabber instead of the not-so-memorable, I grew up in Cincinnati and my mom was an English teacher. Could be wrong, but thinking I met Wilt Chamberlain and saw him naked might have got me a few more sponsors for Berg's Brain. So for those of you too young to know, Wilt Chamberlain started off his professional career playing for the Harlem Globetrotters, 1958-59. to 59. Now, I wasn't born when Wilt played for the Globetrotters, but I have fond memories as a young boy seeing the Globetrotters with hilarious showman Geese Osby, Metalark Lemon, and that crazy, dribbling, ball-handling magician Curly Neal. A couple things always struck me as odd about the Globetrotters. First, scheduling. See, scheduling was clearly not a big priority for the Globetrotters, and starting way back in 1952, they always played the same team, the Washington Generals, every game, every year. Who are we playing tonight, coach? The Generals? Again? Seriously? No other teams around? No one wants a shot at the goddamn Globetrotters? Shit, I gotta guard that fat white dude with B.O., onion breath, and bad gas one more game? I'm gonna lose my shit! Now the second, even more outlandish oddity, was that the Generals starting in 1952 were coached by player manager Red Klotz. And during his tenure as player coach, the Generals lost 2,495 straight games during a 20-year run. Then on January 5, 1971, the Generals did the unthinkable, the unimaginable. They beat the undefeated Harlem Globetrotters 100-99 to on a last-second shot by none other than Red Klotz himself. And while that was front-page news from Maine to Baja, what was more amazing to me was that Red Klotz had managed to keep his job in the midst of a 20-year, zero-win, 2,495-game losing streak. Hell, today a coach starts off 0-5, he's looking over his shoulder more often than a gazelle drinking out of a watering hole in the Serengeti. So after a stint with the Trotters, Wilt next played for the Philadelphia and later San Francisco, now Golden State Warriors, 59-65. Wilt then played for the Philadelphia 76ers, 65-68, and finished out his career with the Lakers, 68-73. Now, I was born in 1960, and five years later when I was five, the Philadelphia 76ers and Wilt Chamberlain came to Cincinnati, my hometown, a town well-known for two illustrious things, Pete Rose and Chili. Now, not a day goes by that I don't question, wonder, contemplate. Why, oh, why did I ever leave that baseball role model culinary utopia? What a combo. 
What a daily double. What an exacta, if you will. Charlie Hustle, Peter Edward Rose, and Skyline Chili. Place a few wagers. Chow down a five-way. And for those of you not from Cincinnati, that's chili, spaghetti, onions, beans, and cheese. Throw on a bib right about now as I know your mouth's watering. And you kick back, throw another hunsky on a few ponies, and head to bed for an eye-watering, paint-peeling, chili farts and flatulent fest. Which, when you think about it, when you analyze it, when you kick it around, flatulence is the pinnacle, the penultimate, when it comes to passing gas. A fart can be funny, a fart can be smelly, a fart can be silent but deadly, but a fart can never be flatulence. It can only dream of being flatulence. A fart is described as an omission of gas from the anus that is often laughed about. Flatulence is defined as the accumulation of gas in the alimentary canal that can be embarrassing and make you feel uncomfortable around each other. Just saying the word flatulence takes you to a whole different level. Sounds like the definition of flatulence should be a fart so massive it flattens anything in its path. In other words, the Hiroshima or Nagasaki of farts. Look, a fart's not bad. A fart's nothing to turn up your nose at. A fart can make a match held near your ass shoot out flames entertaining your buddies for days. But flatulence compared to farting? It's like an eagle and a crow. Both have wings, both can fly, but one is the majestic emblem of a country and was known for its annoying caw at 6 a.m. every fucking morning. So two birds in the hand, but very different in the bush. And you know that phrase, a bird in the hand's worth two in the bush? <laughs> That's retail. Anyone of Middle Eastern descent, a Jew, a Palestinian, an Egyptian, not a one ever pays retail. So in Israel, or Palestine, or Egypt, a bird in the hand can be worth 1.5 to 1.7 in the bush, and for Jews, a bird can go as high as 1.9 if it's a burning bush. But two? What are you, Mashuka? And back to farting. It's interesting, if not a bit odd, that when we fart, we say we're passing gas. Passing it to who? I remember playing past the potato at the family picnic. I remember playing past the football with my dad. I remember passing a car on the freeway last week. At many a meal, I've been asked to pass the corn, pass the bread, pass the wine. But I've never asked, hey, Uncle Mort, could you pass the gas? Although Uncle Mort seems to consistently and repeatedly pass the gas even without the query. So back to 1965 and me as a five-year-old little pisher witnessing a naked seven-foot-one wilt to stilt. See, the Sixers were in town to play our NBA team, the Cincinnati Royals. And back then, teams didn't have fancy-schmancy workout facilities, so the Sixers held a workout at the JCC, the local Jewish community center. This was a place where you could shoot some baskets, grab a Dr. Brown's cream soda, and see old, naked, overweight, cigar-smoking Jewish men with these horrific, hanging, wrinkled turkey giblets dangling between their legs, causing you to wonder why the moil, who circumcised these altacockers years earlier, didn't take a little more off the bottom to account for the unstoppable, unflappable gravitational pull pulling these Prussian prunes downward toward the center of the earth. So this local Jewish guy, a.k.a. Big Macher, Ronnie Grinker, was a sports agent. And if you think it's cool now to be a sports agent, back then, hoo-wah, that guy was hot shit. And Ronnie had that classic Jewish sports agent look. Snazzy suit, gold chains, gold watch, gold Jewish star, and gold high necklaces. Hell, he even drove a goddamn gold Cadillac. So Ronnie represented some of the Royals, and he arranged for the Sixers to practice at the JCC, and he let a few of us on the inside know. So here I am, a five-year-old kid, a few feet away from Chet the Jet Walker because he was so fast. Billy the Kangaroo Kid Cunningham because he had hops for a white boy. Hal the Bulldog Greer because of his game face scowl. And of course, Wilt the Stilt. It doesn't get any better than that. So they finish practice, walk by us, smile, wave, and head downstairs to shower. My brothers, who are 14 and 17 at the time, hand me a pen, piece of paper, and tell me to run down to the locker room to get Wilt's autograph. I jam down the stairs like a bat out of hell to find Wilt. So I make my way into the locker room like one of those irritating, overachieving kid reporters for Nickelodeon News, and the guys are just starting to come out of the shower. Naked. Now remember, my only frame of reference, the only other naked men I'd seen in my five years on planet Earth were five foot two to five foot seven aging Jewish men with penises the size of that classic Jewish pastry, a rolled up rugula. For those of you not versed in Jewish desserts, typical rugula, an inch, maybe two. So as I make my way through the jet, the kangaroo kid, the bulldog, and other gigantic men, 
I felt like I was walking through a car wash with those suspended swinging ribbon-like cloth strip cleaning things. Except these suspended ribbon-like cloth strip cleaning things were massive swinging penises. I'm carrying a pen and paper, and what I needed was a goddamn machete. I felt like Joseph Conrad in the heart of darkness. Suddenly, around the corner, here comes Wilt. And here comes Wilt's penis which was significantly bigger than I'd expected because it was significantly bigger than me. So significant that that Loch Ness monster required two attendants trailing behind him like bridesmaid holding the train of an incredibly long wedding gown. A Princess Diana kind of wedding gown. This thing was so long it could have been used as the official rope in the tug-of-war world championships. So, Wilt and his John Coltrane saunter over to his locker where I'm nervously waiting. But nothing could have prepared me for what I experienced next, as Wilt's enormous, gigantic penis tumbled down. Surrounding me as I looked up to see where it started, I felt like I was stranded at the bottom of a 30-foot well where a kind-hearted fireman dangled a thick rope above to rescue me. Now, I'd heard that Wilt's nickname was the Big Dipper, because in high school he had to dip his head when going through doorways. From my present five-year-old vantage point, seemed to me the Big Dipper probably had a second, more appropriate meaning, and I was pretty damn certain this beast would have also had to duck its head to get through a doorway. And back to the 20,000 women Wilt allegedly slept with for a sec. I guess I can see how an NBA legend like Wilt Chamberlain, especially during the free love 60s, could have had access to thousands of women. But here's where I still have a few doubts. First, for any man to get an erection, blood vessels have to relax and open to allow blood to flow from the heart to the penis. The amount of blood that would have been drained from Wilt's heart necessary to create Wilt's erections would surely have caused a massive heart attack or a stroke. At the very least, the loss of blood from key organs to sustain Wilt's erections for 20,000 women, two a day for 40 years, would have given the Big Dipper narcolepsy. Second, and more importantly, I have a really hard time believing there were actually 20,000 women in the world who could get that thing inside them. Look, my wife and I have two kids, and I've had the good fortune of witnessing both births, so I have first-hand knowledge that the vagina is an incredible body part, the part of parts as far as I'm concerned, with the amazing elasticity to make a six-inch penis feel snug during intercourse, and a mere nine months later expand to accommodate the birth of a child with the average head circumference of 13 and a half goddamn inches. Now my kids, like most kids, were average size births, 7 pounds, 20 inches in length. 7 pounds, 20 inches were the dimensions of just the head of Wilt's penis. If Wilt Chamberlain had been Jewish and named Wilt Hamberlin with the Hanukkah-like CH sound, at Wilt's bris, they would have needed a minion of moils a mob of moils, a miraculous mile of moils to lop the top off Wilt's stilt. So back at Wilt's locker, dazed and in an extreme state of shock, I shift left a few feet to avoid Wilt's anaconda, tentatively reach up and hand Wilt the pen and paper. He smiles, flips his penis over his shoulder and ties it around his waist like he's tying the belt of a robe, grabs the pen and paper, and signs his autograph. On one hand, I'm ecstatic. On the other, dismayed as now I have to plot my escape route through the land of the giant swinging car wash penises. So I'm zigging and zagging like a first-year army recruit on an obstacle course absorbing a few glancing yet painful blows to the head, but I make it through and jam back upstairs. I see my brothers, wave the paper, run over and show them Will's autograph. But instead of happiness, I get a look of horrible disgust. What's the matter, I yelled. They hand me back the paper. Wilt's hand was wet from the shower, and that wet got on the paper, so the autograph was completely smudged and illegible. I was crushed, destroyed. The disappointment of Wilt's wet autograph stayed with me for years. So jump ahead to 1991. I'm now a 31-year-old man, and it's the very year Wilt's autobiography comes out with his claim of stripping 20,000 women. And I knew firsthand that number was a lie, a sham, a miscalculation, because the total wasn't 20,000, it was 20,001. Because when I was five, Wilt fucked me too. Anyway, so back to my Hawaiian spelling bee vacation. Instead of a fun evening of luau, mom pulls out a box of alphabets, 
Hawaiian style, where I quickly learned that unlike the English alphabet with 26 letters, the Hawaiian alphabet and Hawaiian alphabet serial has half those letters. A mere 13 letters, eight consonants, five vowels. So efficient, so tight. And beyond having only 13 letters, what really impressed me about the Hawaiian alphabet was the fact that unlike English, no letter Y. So no A-E-I-O-U, sometimes Y, wishy-washy, on the fence, is it a vowel, is it a consonant? Bullshit. The Hawaiian alphabet has A-E-I-O-U, you know, the real vowels. So Hawaiians got the A-E-I-O-U vowel jingle, and let's face it, that's the meat of the jingle, that's all you really need. Y's a throw-in, an add-on, an afterthought, a two-for-one, a letter to be named later as part of a trade. You know the other alphabet letters gotta think Y's a real douchebag. If I'm an A or a J, I'm telling Y, make up your mind already with this sometimes crap. What are you, Switzerland? Now, I got no idea why letters would talk in that tough guy accent, but it might go back to my childhood watching the Fonz on Happy Days emote his unforgettable A. The Fonz didn't say some lame ass, Y. A kicks Y's ass. Think about it. When you're really excited or really pissed, you say, fucking A. No one says, fucking Y. What the alphabet people ought to do is remove the sometimes Y from the five classic vowels and add the letter Y to the LGBTQ community and call it the LGBTQY community because Y is the alphabet's true trans letter that goes both ways. Hell, the letter Y's got less commitment than a man contemplating marriage for Christ's sake. Now, most of us have used the term for Christ's sake on countless occasions. But being Jewish, I really didn't know why we said it. Why do we say for Christ's sake? So I looked it up on Wikipedia, and it starts off by giving a definition that says, for Christ's sake is a colloquial. Now, to be honest, that didn't help me one goddamn bit, because what the hell's a colloquial? Not a goddamn librarian here. So now i got to look up the word colloquial so I can understand the phrase, for Christ's sake. So once I get through the colloquial BS, I read on it and it says, For Christ's sake is used to express surprise, contempt, outrage, disgust, boredom, or frustration. It then went on to list synonyms or similar phrases such as, For Cripe's sake, for God's sake, for Pete's sake, for goodness sake, for heaven's sake. And then there was the classic, shocking, seemingly out-of-place synonym, For fuck's sake. So we've gone from for Christ's sake to for Pete's sake, to for fuck's sake. Can't imagine Jesus or the Holy Ghost is thrilled with that little synonym transitional journey. So ever the linguist, I looked up the phrase for fuck's sake, and it said it's an idiomatic colloquial. For Christ's sake, another goddamn colloquial? It says for fuck's sake is a vulgar expression of anger or frustration. And then in classic spelling bee protocol, it used the phrase in a sentence, and that sentence was, for fuck's sake, mate, stop shooting at me. So I guess the origin of for fuck's sake must be Aussie, since it includes the word mate, and the Aussie man who said, for fuck's sake, mate, stop shooting at me, must have been a black mate visiting America, as he appears to be asking the cops to stop shooting at me. And I gotta believe a few of these Aussie black men have the high probability of also shouting the phrase, for fuck's sake, mate, I can't fucking breathe. And back to for Pete's sake for a sec. For Pete's sake is what's called a minced oath, where an offensive word or phrase is substituted by something more acceptable in society. Here the name Pete is a euphemistic replacement for God. Hmm. So there's the Father, the Son, the Holy Ghost, and Pete. And somewhat ridiculously, every February 26th is celebrated as for Pete's sake day. The phrase, for Pete's sake, has its own day, for Christ's sake? After learning that, I looked up the phrase, for fuck's sake, to see if it had its own day, but unfortunately, for fuck's sake didn't make the Advent calendar cut. But for Pete's sake day, there's even a recommended way to celebrate. On for Pete's sake day, if you know a Pete, do something for his sake. Like give Pete a small gift, buy Pete lunch, any little thing to show you value Pete. And being from Cincinnati, as you now know the notable home of Skyline Chili and Pete Rose, the city really embraces the day as it holds its annual for Pete's sake day, where we all chip in and pay off Pete's gambling debts for the year. The Father, the Son, the Holy Ghost, and Pete Rose. The Holy Trinity plus one. Now there's a spread you know Pete wagered a few ducats on. 
So back on Hawaii, we continue our spelling vacation by watching Hawaiian Wheel of Fortune. And this huge Samoan dude was solving the puzzle and says, Hey, brah, I'd like to buy me a U. And that one letter U filled in 27 goddamn spaces of the phrase, nine alone in one word, Hawaii State Fish, humu humu nuku nuku ah And back to the phrase, huge Samoan dude, about as redundant and unnecessary as the phrase, loose gravel. Just as all gravel is loose, all Samoans are huge. You're driving down the highway and have an option of plowing into a pile of loose gravel or a Samoan? Go for the gravel, because you and your car ain't surviving a front-ender with Afu, Aleki, or Aputi, three of the most popular Samoan boys' first names. Now, in terms of common Samoan last names, Fui Maono is first, followed by Tui Gamala, and third on the list, Smith. Smith? Look, being of Eastern European Jewish descent, I know the legacy of Jews arriving at Ellis Island and changing their names to sound a little bit less ethnic. Lopinski to Lapin, Abramovich to Abrams, Bergowitz to Berg. But that seems a lot less drastic than going from Tua Gamala to Smith. You go from Tua Gamala to Smith, you clearly want to break free from your Samoan heritage, or far more likely, Tua Gamala became Smith after a massive number of lily-white Mormon missionaries arrived in Samoas in the 1800s and used the church-approved missionary position to indoctrinate, inseminate, and rename a lot of native Samoans. So we returned from our Hawaiian vacation and continued eating and spelling without missing a beat. And while eating and spelling at every meal grew tiresome, the worst was when I got in trouble in mom's class. One time she'd had enough of me talking in the back to my best friend, Danny Rothenberger, and she made me write, I will not talk in class 1,000 times using alphabet cereals and individual Tupperware bowls. And to make sure each I will not talk in class was anchored in the bowl, mom actually contacted the CW Post Company, you know, the makers of Grape Nuts, and had them ship 250 boxes of bite-sized barnacles to our school so I could complete the punishment anchoring every single sentence into those plastic repositories. And believe you me, she's got those bowls stashed away with all the other bowls in her attic back home. And while I make fun of that time and mom's harebrained method, ultimately it did help me to learn and spell, although it did lead to one of my more embarrassing moments, because a few years later... My girlfriend had me over to her house to meet her family for the first time, and they were a big board game playing family. So after dinner, they brought out that game Scrabble, and I ate all the letters. And seconds after swallowing the last letter, I turned to her parents and said, Hate to say anything, but you might want to check the expiration date. The letters are a little stale. Well, my girlfriend and her parents didn't find that too amusing, so they went to bed, and moments after they left, I was suddenly hit with this intense urge to go number two. And do you notice most of the time when you go number two, you also go number one, but we never add them together to say we went number three? No wonder America's math ranking is 35th in the world. So I'm sitting on the toilet reflecting on what just happened, and I'm kind of bummed at myself as eating the letters was clearly a bonehead move because Scrabble is my favorite game, and now the letters were gone. See, I was so good at Scrabble, I could regularly spell the word Scrabble with my tiles. The thing was, after eating all those stale wooden tiles, I'm a little backed up. So I start pushing and clenching until I squeezed out the word constipation, one wooden letter tile square at a time. It was as if I was using my ass like some bizarre X-rated Pez dispenser. And unbelievably, the word constipation turned out to be a triple word score worth 300 points. My highest one word total ever. Realizing what I'd just done, I yelled out, Honey, it may take a while, but I think I can get all the letters back for the game if your family wants to keep playing. I heard an audible groan of disgust, which I took as a no. Well, not wanting to lose my triple word score, I snuck down to the kitchen like the Grinch, looked into the pantry, and saw cereals that might work as binders, like kasha, oatmeal, or frosted mini-wheats. But I knew they didn't have the same tenacious, tightening tensile strength of grape nuts when luckily I spotted three large boxes of grape nuts on the top shelf. Hallelujah! So I grabbed the boxes, snuck back upstairs, and poured every box into the toilet. Then I thought, hmm, how am I going to mix this up? When I looked over and saw one of those toilet bowl cleaners in the plastic holder, so I grabbed it, mixed up the cement paste, stirring the letters into place as the grape nuts hardened. 
While beaming with pride, I grabbed my phone, snapped a photo, sent it to mom. A couple seconds later, she sent the first of two texts. I could hear mom's classic tone of voice as the first text said, Always told you after eating alphabets, your next bowel movement could spell disaster, but you took it one syllable farther and spelled constipation. Nice work, son. And her second text said, But I'm a little disappointed, sweetie, because after all those years of practice, what thought you knew the word constipation started with a C, not a K. Crap, I used a goddamn K. Suddenly I broke into a nervous sweat and couldn't get the image out of my brain of my mom and her family at the house during the holidays, laughing hysterically at another one of my misspelled bowls. So I immediately tried scraping off the K, while at the same time attempting to squeeze a letter C out of my Pez dispensing ass to replace the K, when I realized the K was forever hardened into place as grape nuts and water, it hears even faster than grape nuts and milk. I'm freaking out, so I start using my girlfriend's electric toothbrush, knives from the kitchen, a pickaxe from the garage, but nothing will dislodge the wooden letter K from the gritty, gravelly grape nut glue. I was left with one choice. I unscrewed the toilet, carried it out of the house, threw it in my trunk, and faced my humiliation head-on by giving the toilet bowl to Mom as a holiday gift for her collection. Collection with a C, not a K. And while I outgrew my desire to munch on Scrabble letters, I do occasionally get a craving. Fortunately, I found a surprisingly good replacement as Nabisco makes those Triscuit crackers. Ever eat one of these rebar-laced, sandpaper-surfaced, particle-board pumice pieces that double as a cracker and a door planer? If I was ever in prison, I'd have a buddy send me a box of Triscuits and saw through my cell bars in a matter of minutes. Triscuits are far and away the strongest cracker known to man. You can place a 20-pound block of Wisconsin sharp-edged cheddar on a Triscuit, and it doesn't even chip at the edges. I mean, if you're ever stuck on a desert island and a box of Triscuits washes up on shore... Count your lucky stars, because you just got yourself an indestructible raft to sail your ass home. And the best thing about eating Triscuits at my age is that it saves me a trip to the doctor as passing these barbed wire hydronated loofah pads when I go number two scrapes polyps off my colon wall lining far better than any proctologist performing a colonoscopy. Grains, fruits, vegetables, if these are what they call roughage, then Triscuits are clearly the roughest. And while Triscuit's colon cleansing is great, you gotta be careful with Triscuit's because if you pour the crackers out of the box too quickly, friction ignites these kindling crackers and they burst right into flames. My Nana poured a few Triscuit's out of the box at her bridge game two months ago and tragically she burned the Happy Acres Assisted Living Care Center to the ground. It made the news and I watched avidly as the fire marshal standing at the smoldering ash pile said he determined the exact cause of the fire was a box of Triscuit's. The marshal went on to say, And because of the intense heat and devastation of the blaze, we've determined that these were regular Triscuits, not the reduced-fat kind. Crazy how after every massive fire, they do this investigation and report with incredible, specific, microscopic detail how a wildfire that destroyed a million acres was caused by Joe Djokovic, a 39-year-old left-handed substitute teacher with a handlebar mustache who had one match left on the bottom row of his pack he took from the cantina restaurant on Taco Tuesday on a rainy night in November. We hear the explanation, don't bat an eye or even question the absurdity of that analysis. It's like when the deer hunting lobby claims that, we has to hunt and kill the deer because you don't thin the herd. Them poor sons of bitches are going to up and die from starvation. And we just accept the logic. Like, sure, that makes sense. Really? Has anyone asked the deer if they think it's a necessary policy? Every deer I've seen walk around is usually near a lot of foliage eating to their heart's delight. So the starvation argument seems pretty fucking weak. And we do the same damn thing with snowflakes. From the time you're a wee lad, you always hear people say, Every snowflake's unique. Every snowflake's different. There's no two alike. How the hell does anyone know that? Study that. Prove that. You can't keep them. You can't save them. You can't put them in a scrapbook like four-leaf clovers. Yet we simply accept it as true. Surprised the deer hunting lobby hasn't joined forces with the snowflake-ologists to push forth the argument that when it's winter and all these unique, one-of-a-kind snowflakes fall from the sky and land on these poor, starving, foliage-deprived deer, 
only thing you can do is shoot them to save the herd from not only starving, but freezing to death. For God's sake, for Pete's sake, and for fuck's sake. And while I'm pretty certain deer prefer struggling to find food over getting shot, one thing deer are prone to, unlike any other animal, is that deer seem to be the only animal that can't figure out headlights. You know, the proverbial deer in the headlights look as they get caught looking to a Ford Taurus's high beams? It's odd how moose, elk, caribou, even the deer's first cousin, the reindeer, can stare straight into a pair of headlights and keep right on going. But the deer, poor creature, sees those headlights, freezes up like your sphincter trying to squeeze out scrabble tiles during a proctology exam. Hell, no one deer are blinded by headlights, or as we now say, headlight challenged, I can't for the life of me figure out hunters. Why would you get up at that godawful time of 4 a.m., put on all that camo gear, sitting in a freezing blind to maybe see a deer and maybe hit it with a shot. Hey, Einstein, here's another approach. Head to your favorite watering hole, throw back a couple pops, close down the joint if you're so inclined, jump into your nice, warm, seat-heated Matthew McConaughey Lincoln Navigator with seating up to eight, drive out to a dark, remote dirt road, flip on your brights, and just be patient. Because at some point, a deer's going to cross the road. And notice how there's no why did the deer cross the road jokes? Because if your headlights are on, that deer ain't crossing the road. Hell, that deer ain't crossing shit. And while that headlight challenge deer stuck in the middle of the road staring smack dab at you, calmly, slowly, take a shot of Jack Daniels. Get out of your navigator. Walk around the trunk. Grab your Remington 7600 or your Marlin 1895 or both if you're so inclined. Take another shot of Jack. Line up that eight-point buck, bag the poor headlight-challenged bastard, do another shot. Drive over in your Matthew McConaughey Lincoln Navigator with seating up to eight. Strap him to the roof of your Matthew McConaughey Lincoln Navigator with seating up to eight. And then make sure you got really good cell phone reception so you can call AAA to help jump your deer-killing sorry ass because your battery's dead from leaving your damn lights on, dumbass. And back to snowflakes for a sec. The guy who's credited with finding that every snowflake is unique was a photographer named William Bentley, whose nickname, no shit, was the Snowflake Man. This kook snapped pics of snowflakes for five decades, starting in the late 1800s. And after five decades, the Snowflake Man finally published his first and preeminent book, Snow Crystals, capturing the uniqueness and individuality of snowflakes. In his obituary, Bentley was described as euphoric and gloriously happy when the first copies of Snow Crystals were delivered to him. Unfortunately, and rather ironically, after getting the books hot off the presses, Snowflake Man excitedly heads out to snap more photos on his way home walking through a blizzard, contracts pneumonia, and dies a couple days later. Can't tell me God doesn't have one sick sense of humor, and maybe, just maybe, God will apply that same sinister sick sense of humor to deer hunters who, when they pull the trigger, their guns fire backwards, sending the herd of these schmucks. And here's another example of something we take for granted without questioning. Living in the Bay Area, we have access to incredibly tasty Dungeness crab. And many families eat this incredibly tasty Dungeness crab for a kind of non-traditional Christmas dinner. Unfortunately, this year, the crab guys went on strike, so there wasn't any crab. So a friend of ours brought over three live Maine lobsters. Now, I've eaten lobster. I just never had to kill one. So I asked my friend Nancy how to kill it, and she says, Well, you can either throw them in boiling water and steam them, but they scream, and that's horrifying. So our live-in master chef, Philippe, says, Take a large, sharp knife, slice right down through the brain first, then steam them, because it's so much more humane. I hear her gentle, sing-songy explanation and initially think, yeah, that makes sense. Wouldn't want to cause unnecessary pain to the poor creature. So like an idiot and close first cousin to the deer hunter, I grab a lobster from the box, place it on the cutting board, and its beady eyes are looking up at me as my daughter films me placing the knife at the base of the skull and with significant force to break the hard shell, crack through the head, splitting the brain. Now what my Martha Stewartish friend Nancy didn't tell me it's like the proverbial chicken with its head cut off that runs around the pen till it dies. The lobster's reflexes remain intact, so it moves about for a good 30 to 45 seconds. So you can't watch the horror any longer, and you have to chuck the East Coast crustacean into the screaming steamer. And remember, folks, the butcher knife lobotomy is the humane way to kill it. 
wonder if Nancy would change her sing-songy tune if someone pithed her brain then chucked her into a hot tub. So let's clear up all the bullshit. Fire marshals can't honestly tell you how all fires start. There's no legitimate reason to kill deer to thin the herd. No one, not even Einstein, has any way of proving all snowflakes are unique. And last but not least, there's no humane fucking way to kill a goddamn lobster, for Christ's sake. We simply take all these things for granted. We don't question, don't challenge, don't say, yeah, Mark Marin, what the fuck? And while I'm sure there's more, here's the last one for today. Insanity. We've heard it a million times. In politics, sports, business, we've heard people and experts say, the definition of insanity is doing the same thing over and over and expecting different results. And this definition of insanity has been credited to our good friend, Albert Einstein. Now I suggest you sit down for this riff, or if you're listening to the podcast while driving, pull off to the side of the road. First, the definition of insanity as doing the same thing over and over again and expecting different results ain't even close to the real definition of insanity. Webster's and Oxford's English dictionaries, two pretty reputable players in the dictionary space, define insanity as mental illness of such severe nature that a person can't distinguish fantasy from reality, can't conduct his or her affairs due to psychosis, or is subject to uncontrollable compulsive behavior. In either dictionary's definition, don't say shit about doing the same thing over and over and expecting different results. Doing the same thing over and over and expecting different results doesn't sound like you're insane. Sounds like you're a fucking moron. These two definitions aren't in the same ballpark, not even approximately. And we know how much goddamn leeway there is with the word approximately. Now grab a beverage or undo your seatbelt. Because next, Einstein didn't even say it. The phrase insanity is doing the same thing over and over and expecting different results is what historians say is misattributed to Einstein. This dude's figuring out E equals MC squared and splitting the goddamn atom. Don't think Crazy Locks was super focused on coming up with catchy sayings about mental health. So in conclusion, first, the definition of insanity as doing the same thing over and over and expecting different results is light years apart from the true meaning. Second, the incorrect definition of insanity as doing the same thing over and over and expecting different results is misattributed to perhaps the most intelligent genius to ever walk the planet. Third, we all just accept the incorrect definition and that Einstein was the genius who came up with it. Call me crazy, but to me, that's insanity. Anyway, so while I felt bad for my Nana and the residents of Happy Acres losing their homes due to what the news dubbed the Trisket Poor Fire, it sparked a great idea for my recent camping trip. Left the matches in Kindling Home, grabbed a box of Triscuits, poured them out of the box, and boom, instant campfire. And while most campers enjoy sitting around the fire eating s'mores, not me. Started with a bowl of alphabets, then grabbed a handful of stale scrabble letters, munched on a few Triscuits, and finished by pouring down a box of palate-cleansing nerds. Only thing was, after eating all that roughage, I had to go number two, and likely number three, really bad. So I jammed over to the porta potty outhouse thing, or as it's referred to on construction sites, the honey bucket, which is a bizarre name for the not-so-sweet business we do in that cockamamie contraption. And no sooner do I drop trowel when sparks and flames shoot out my ass due to the speed and friction at which the Triscuits jettison my Pez-dispensing backside. Fortunately, the flames shot straight into the honey bucket's chemical blue water and disgusting solid residue, thankfully averting an out-of-control forest fire. Can you imagine my embarrassment if a fire would have ensued and the fire marshal gave his incredibly accurate commentary on how the fire started? After careful analysis, we've determined beyond a shadow of a doubt that the fire was started by this idiot Jewish podcaster from Cincinnati named Doug who ate a combustible combination of alphabets, scrabble letters, triscuits, and nerds and created a damn flamethrower out of his pest-dispensing ass. As fate would have it, immediately after the honey bucket triscuit blast, scrabble letters started popping out of my tender bottom one wooden letter tile square at a time, miraculously forming the word disaster, a 200-point double word score just like Mom had predicted years earlier. While wanting to preserve the 200-point score, I ran back to my campsite, grabbed three boxes of grape nuts, which I always travel with just in case, 
scurried back to the porter potty and poured in all three boxes. Didn't have anything long enough to stir up the grape nuts, but fortunately they mixed in swimmingly with the existing dense, sticky composition of the porta potty waste coagulating into the perfect texture for the letters to lock together in a formation for eternity. And being the good son, always wanting to please his mom, I cleaned up, ran back to the campsite, got my car, drove back to the porta potty, hitched it to the rear bumper like a small U-Haul trailer, and drove the honey bucket back to Cincinnati. And just like old times when my family entered the honey bucket to check out my handiwork, I inadvertently gave everyone a huge laugh as mom pointed out the word disaster contains two S's, not two Z's. Crap. Literally and figuratively. Fortunately, my loving English teacher of a mom overlooked the mistake and simply added the honey bucket to her misspelled bowl collection, and that's collection, with a C, not a K. Well, thanks for listening to Berg's Brain and hope you enjoyed the ride. Special thanks to my close friend, musical director, and guitar legend, Jeff Peapod Miller. Thanks to the incredibly talented Berg's Brain graphic designer, Claire Skilperort. And if you like Berg's Brain, please subscribe and share it with your friends. Peapod, take the Berg's Brain train back to the station or wherever you want to take us.